1: Welcome to the New Books Network- Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lebell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Katherine Johnston to discuss her new book, The Nature of Slavery: Environment and Plantation Labor in the Anglo-Atlantic World, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. In the late 18th century, plantation owners and slaveholders in the Caribbean and the American South publicly argued that the slave trade must continue because biological and physiological difference made African people capable of withstanding the heat and labor required to work on plantations. This climatic defense of enslavement allowed planters to deny their own culpability in enslaving human beings while also framing the issue of racial slavery. The nature of slavery challenges this framing of labor, environment, and the development of racial ideologies. Using extensive personal and professional correspondence and colonial records, Dr. Johnston demonstrates that privately, planters did not observe any health differences between black and white bodies, yet White slaveholders publicly defended racial slavery constructed on a climatic rhetoric and biological theory of race they knew to be false. The ideology linking race and climate supported their economic motives. Planter's strategic climatic defense of racial slavery in the late 18th century became a retroactive explanation for its establishment in the colonies. This rhetoric contributed to historical myths about enslaved bodies and a groundless theory of race, which was used to perpetuate the institution of slavery. Nature of Slavery powerfully argues that, quote, a rhetoric of bodily difference gained strength and power as slaveholders and others imbued it with a language of nature. The book interrogates how people with an interest in African slavery manufactured and publicly disseminated a baseless rhetoric about climate, race, and labor they knew privately to contradict their lived experiences. Catherine Johnston is an assistant professor in the Department of History and Philosophy at Montana State University. Her work focuses on slavery, race, the body, and the environment in Atlantic plantation societies. Kate, I'm delighted to welcome you to New Books Network. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So before we get to the argument of the book, I, I'm wondering how you came to write this book. Like what drew you to the intersection of race and climate? I mean, the book contrasts what's said and written publicly with what's written privately. And I, I'm wondering whether you started with the public or the private. Yeah, that's a that's a great question.
0: Um, so I was you know as a as a early graduate student really interested in basically the development of categories of bodily difference and um and and so race was a big one of those and i sort of thought well how is it that we got to this place where we think you know we have this this idea of race right and obviously scholars are, you know, have debunked this, but, but, but it, but it remains a really big part of our society. And and so I was interested in how we kind of got there in the first place. So uh, like any good graduate student, I went to the library and I read as much as I could and all of the material that I read or much of it for the kind of for us and Western Europe pointed me to the late 18th century um, and sort of said, well, the development of Bodily sciences, right? Like biology, uh, anatomy, um, phrenology, right, craniology, including these things, you know, people say they're not sciences, but at the time, right, they're 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 given equal weight to things like anatomy and biology. And they said, well, the development of these sciences coming from scientists in Western Europe gave rise to this idea that there are, you know, biological fundamental differences among people. And so I sort of thought, well, how, you know, how did we get there? And in thinking, right, this, this black-white dichot- dichotomy became really apparent in this work. And so in thinking about how we got there, I thought, well, you know, Western Europeans at the time have a lot of stake in plantation societies in the Atlantic world. And there is a space right where black and white bodies coexist. And some of the other stuff I read sort of said, well, the information, you know, about about these bodies gave rise to these sciences. So I thought, okay, I'm going to read what I can sources, you know, from these plantation societies and they're they're going to say something about this. And what I found was that the end of the 18th century, right, you have these debates in parliament in Britain um, and to some extent US congress where abolitionists are saying well we should end the transatlantic slave trade and so you had planters slaveholders a number of stakeholders with an interest in slavery saying that that would ruin the whole economy it's impossible without africans and black bodies we cannot cultivate These major crops, um, you know, sugar and rice and all of these things, uh, because only Black bodies are capable of this labor. So I thought, okay. So I went back and I, I started reading letters from plantation societies, either people like writing to family members or sort of absentee planters getting letters from overseers or managers or these kinds of things on plantations, and I was looking for evidence of differences in health, right? Differences in health between black and white bodies, and where are they noticing differences in health? And everything I saw said the environment and the weather is what determines health. So you would see things like, oh, it's been really rainy, and so everyone black and white is sick oh, it's been really dry, and so people are healthy again. And you saw this, I saw this sort of over and over and over, and I was really puzzled because I thought they're not saying anything about differences in in bodies, in terms of health, bodily health between sort of black bodies and white bodies. It's all about the weather. It's all about the environment. How close are you to running water? Where are you in terms of the breezes? What is the environment telling you? So it was the weather and it was the local surroundings. And that became this this point of, of determining health, right? And so I thought, well, what is going on here? I have to kind of go back and look some more. Um, and so, you know, and I, I can get into this more later, but but that's kind of the point where this public-private dichotomy started to emerge, where I was seeing one thing in the private correspondence and letters and then seeing a totally different thing in these public debates.
1: No, and we're going to get to that in just a, a minute, but I, I'm fascinated by the archives and you describe some of this as you go and it's in the footnotes and it's in, in a little bit in the um, introduction as to how many places that you had to go. So just like briefly, um, give us an idea of the places where these letters, and it's not just personal letters because this is, you're also looking at all kinds of of documents, um, you know, economic, political. Uh, Just tell us like a tiny bit about where they came from and maybe like one like big aha moment that you had in an archive in which, like there was a particular, if there was a particular sort of document that that really surprised you or kind of magically brought everything together? Uh,
0: sure. Yeah. So I, for the most part, so I had I had research kind of all over the place, um, but a lot of the research came from letters that were written in um, mostly in in British plantation societies in, in the Caribbean, um, especially early on and in my research. So Jamaica, Antigua, Barbados are sort of the big ones. And then also some of, some other of smaller islands, St. Kitts and Nevis. And, um, and these letters, they're mostly written from these places and they're sent to, to friends or family or more employers in the UK and largely in England and Scotland. So to a lesser extent, Scotland. And uh, so I started out just, I mean, my my first archival trip was really in the British library looking for these letters. And then uh, I also went to the National Archives at Q to look for more official correspondence and sort of find out what was happening, what were people writing to um, government officials. But I was really interested in this private correspondence and how I could See more of that. And so uh, in the US, I was in archives um, sort of in the Northeast, in in Philadelphia, in Boston, um, in areas like that. But in the UK, after kind of going through what I could find at at the sort of larger national and archives and British Library, I started going to smaller regional historical societies essentially and archives. So, you know, in the hope that someone who had sent a letter to some family member and the family member's descendants had kept it for generations and then donated it to the local historical society. So fortunately for me, the UK has a great network of trains. Um, So I would find all of these little, you know, smaller bits of archival material at various local regional Historical societies and travel around by train and looking for those and at them. And sometimes it was easy to access. Sometimes it was a lot harder. Sometimes I'd travel for hours and find, you know, one fragment of a letter. Uh, But I sort of thought, well, the more I can gather, the more I'll have a sense of sort of how common this thinking is, right? Is it about the environment or not? Um, Scotland was interesting there were a few there are a couple of estates where people still have they sort of their family papers on their own personal private estate and it's really not accessible by train it's kind of in the middle of the highlands um and so for that I had the slightly harrowing experience of renting a car and for the first time myself driving on the other side of the road and uh trying to find these estates that with you know, the most rudimentary maps. Um, and I also went to archives in Jamaica, uh, but for the most part, the archival material in places like the UK is stronger than that in Jamaica because the letters were being sent from Jamaica to the UK. Jamaica has a few copies um, and... But they're less well preserved in some cases, but it was still, it was a useful, it was a really useful trip. Um, an aha moment. I guess there were, there were, I, I do remember being in Inverness and sort of coming across a letter from the mid 18th century saying, oh, we've got, uh, you know, these, all these white people working in a field. Uh, and it's, basically like they're slaves and sort of coming across little tidbits like that, where I, everything I had read told me that, you know, by the, you know, certainly long before the middle of the 18th century, you didn't have white people working in fields like that. Um, but finding little bits like that, I, I do remember thinking in Inverness, Oh, this is
1: fantastic. <laughs> um, you're, you're, it's a great story. Uh, you're really focused on documents. I mean, that's, you're a historian and that's how this book is is written. But you note know throughout that these documents only capture the thoughts and the desires of some people, predominantly white people. Can you talk a little bit about the challenge of writing this book with this kind of a lopsided record and, and the ways in which you try to capture the perceptions of enslaved people and others who may be underrepresented in the written and preserved record?
0: Yeah, that's, that's such a great, that's such a great question. Um, and it's something that bothered me throughout my research and the writing, which was right, this whole book is about the way that white people are thinking and writing about black people, right? And I don't have, I don't have these sources of these enslaved people who are saying, you know, this is what I think. And on the on the one hand i thought well this is i mean this is obviously a problem but there was also the it's the book is about the development of the argument that black people are especially suited to labor in hot climates and this is why slavery racial slavery should be preserved right and so there trying to make excuses and justifications for racial slavery based on this concept that black people are have greater bodily fitness for this labor and it, i mean it's it's not difficult to kind of come to the conclusion that It would be a real stretch for any enslaved person to sort of say, oh, yeah, this is a really good reason why I should be enslaved, right? Like, clearly, I am better at laboring in hot climates, and so I should be enslaved. Like, that was just, I mean, it was so... So on the one hand, it was like, well, maybe this is less of a problem because there's no one who, who it's, it's impossible to imagine an enslaved person who would think that, right? That I'm better suited to this climate and therefore I should be enslaved. But there was this question of, as time went on and as this argument about Black bodies being particularly suited to labor in these hot climates sort of became entrenched how did black people think about this argument? Did they sort of buy into it? Did they reject it? How did they think about it? And so that led me to try to find whatever sources I could. And I didn't, I did not have, you know, easy or, or really any access to personal papers. But when I started looking at newspapers written by, published by um, Black Americans, the climate argument, especially as it then played out into the 19th century, kept appearing in various places. And so looking through newspapers turned out to be a really fruitful way of assessing kind of how Black people are responding to this argument. And you saw, I saw sort of different uh responses, right? I mean, for the most part, black activists are like, this is the most ridiculous argument I've ever heard. Um, right. In in all kinds of ways, right? You have someone like Frederick Douglass just being like, Well, uh, I and my family and my, you know, have lived here for generations and generations. And so the idea that somehow my black body is better suited to Africa than it is to the Americas makes no sense whatsoever. You know, the idea that black people can't stand the cold. He's like writing from, you know, the middle of winter in upstate New York saying, you know what (laughs) I'm alive and I'm doing just fine. Uh, so trying to get to the, the newspapers was a big part of trying to get that angle, even though it's still imperfect.
1: Your book underlines how the rhetoric of race and climate not only affected 18th century debates about the slave trade, but also how scholars have come to understand labor and environment today. So let's start with what the labor force in the early English Caribbean actually looked like as opposed to how we might perceive it. Um, So what do we know about European conceptions of hot climates and, and labor? Yeah.
0: So in, in the early 17th century uh, and in these kind of English controlled, sort of controlled islands. Um, so in the 1620s, 1630s, most of the labor force was composed of people from the british isles right from england from scotland from wales from ireland from these places uh even if ireland is not british uh, anyway uh and, and and of some indigenous laborers right i mean there's this the the general myth out there that all indigenous people just disappeared uh in large part it's harder to find them in the records, but they were there. And these servants and other people from the British Isles were there as well. And they're doing this labor. It's, you know, most of these islands are fairly heavily forested when they arrive and they're cutting down trees, cutting through forests, doing the arduous labor of uh, creating plantations. There are some African laborers there, um, but they're not the majority. Uh, and so in this early period, you actually, you do have white people doing a lot of this work. Um, and then later, and maybe we'll get into this later, but then later you have planters denying that this would ever even be possible. Um, and then I, should I talk about the historian part or maybe later,
1: (laughs) It's up to you. I mean, I think I think one of the great things about the book is that is that you take us back and forth. You take us to like what actually was happening and then how it was narrated later for those purposes. But but we'll get to that later. So I no, I think that's really helpful to understand. It's it's a predominantly white workforce at the beginning and it's mixed. It comes from the British Isles. It comes from Ireland. It comes from indigenous an indigenous people. Um, that's what it looked like. And, and what at that moment did they think about the heat? Like as, as they were coming from, uh, these various places in Europe, how is it that they perceived the heat for themselves as workers? Oh yes. Right. Well, this is so central. Uh, so
0: sort of in the, the very brief telling, um, there are these Aristotelian theories, right? That the, that you can divide the the world into these zones of the, the cold frozen zones at the poles, and then these temperate zones where people can live. And then this torrid zone that's in the middle of the earth and nothing can survive there. No, it's way too hot. It's burning. Um, and as you have early Forays of Europeans into the Caribbean, that kind of area, they're like, oh, you know, actually, it turns out people can live here and plants seem to thrive here, and so they they sort of start to change their minds. But this Aristotelian idea still is fairly strong, um, even though there's all this evidence that shows that. <laughs> Plants and people live there, uh, but they're still wondering: right, can white bodies survive here? Like, what's going to happen to white bodies if they go into this hot place? Are they going to change, and in what ways are they going to change? Right, and so there's, um, you know, are the food they eat going to change them? Is the the air, the whole climate? How how are their bodies going to change? I think that. They believe that they will change, um, but they're not sure to what extent they will change and to what extent they can actually survive and thrive. um, Or is this completely different climate going to just slay them? Uh, So that's kind of what, you know, this prevailing thought in the British Isles in these places. And then when So early writings of people who go there start to sort of say, well, actually, this heat is kind of nice, right? This isn't so bad. And here are all the precautions I took right here. I'm I'm not trying, I'm trying to not drink too much alcohol. I'm trying to not eat too heavy of a diet. I need to, you know, do all these things. I need to keep myself warm. There's, there's all this discussion about, you know, if you should leave your pores open or make sure to close your pores because you're sweating, but otherwise you could get too cold and the nights are cool. And so, but there's a lot of this writing about, well, how do, for example, English bodies survive in this place? And then you have all these letters coming back, sort of saying, well, hey, this actually isn't so bad at all. Or I find I'm pretty healthy here. Or, well, I was sick for a little bit and now I'm so much better and I feel great. And so there's an element of surprise in these letters. Um, and whether that's sometimes it's the person who's writing it, who's actually surprised. And sometimes it's somebody writing who themselves is you know, themselves is no longer surprised, but they're writing to people who they think will be surprised by this news that they are healthy. Um, and so there's still this, you know, this kind of idea that I don't know how these white bodies are going to do in this hot climate. Uh, and that kind of, persists even as people start to dispel any fears that they can.
1: No, it's very interesting how from that perspective, it's about individual bodies and how they will come to places, yet with an idea that maybe white bodies are different than black bodies, but nevertheless, the emphasis seems to be on adaptation and how is it that things like diet and clothing and whether you sit in the shade and all of these things will affect your ability, you know, to work. Um, The the book, uh, this is the first substantive, you have a beautiful introduction and a great conclusion, and then there's six substantive chapters, and you cover these issues of 17th century beliefs rooted in earlier beliefs like the Aristotelian one, you know, about Labor and the environment, and then you move to a really specific case, which is Georgia from seventeen thirty-two to seventeen fifty. And this was a colony conceived as an experiment, you know, one in which labor would be done without enslaved Africans. So tell us, I know all of this is 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 condensing things that you spend um, lots of time being super nuanced about. So I apologize for for that. It's just the. The inevitability of the podcast, uh, a book in an hour, but what happened in Georgia and how, how did that experience contribute to the justification for race-based slavery across hot climates when this earlier conception seemed to say like, actually, you can put anybody in these hot climates and they they'll they'll adapt.
0: Yeah, well, Georgia. Oh, it's the most fascinating colony. So, what happens in Georgia is Kate. (laughs) Yeah, right. It is. Um, So, toward the end, just as a brief background, toward the end of the 17th century, there, there's still this idea about like, well, what do hot climates do? And, um, but you begin to have this growing savviness of some. Some people, especially from Britain, who are sort of like, I find that this climate is totally fine, but I also recognize that there's still a fear and still an uncertainty about what this climate can do to and for white bodies. And so there's this, just you see it in little bits and pieces here and there, Um, and Uh, it's about, well, I know that this reputation exists and how can I sort of manipulate it to my own advantage? Uh, And in Georgia, so Georgia is a colony. It starts in the early 1730s. Uh, So 1731, this group of basically philanthropists called the trustees uh, get permission from parliament to start this new colony. It's going to be just south of South Carolina. And um, and they're going to sort of, you know, give those the, the worthy poor, right, the unemployed in Britain a chance to learn the value of hard work and that through their hard work, they're going to become such industrious people. Uh, so they've got this idea, right, it's going to be this colony of yeoman farmers, and it's it's going to be so great. And so they they sort of say, well, we need to have certain restrictions in this colony to make sure that we uphold Morality and good behavior, uh, and so they have things like, you know, no, no alcohol, and uh, and and no lawyers, which is one of my favorites, um, <laughs> because that will just introduce corruption. Uh, but they also say no enslaved Africans, right? No, sort of enslaved people of African descent. They don't prohibit indigenous enslaved people. Um, but uh, they do prohibit enslaved Africans who are by this point, by the 1730s, the majority of the labor force in South Carolina, uh, cultivating rice, um, among other crops. So this is this, this this trustees sort of magical idea for this colony. And they start to send over people uh, from Britain and very quickly, there's all kinds of problems, right? I mean, there's hugely forested areas. They send over people who have no experience cutting down trees, no experience farming. They're completely unprepared for any of this. And they're just faced with these vast woodlands and told, okay, go ahead, clear and and plant. Uh, And so there's all kinds of issues. And one of the issues is that the... So some of the colonists come over with servants and they start complaining that their servants are totally worthless, right? They're like, they're running away, they're smuggling rum and getting drunk, they're uh, robbing us, um, they're doing all kinds of things and they're completely unreliable. And so they start complaining to the trustees, we need more servants, we need more servants uh, because we can't do this work. Uh, And then there's this faction that emerges fairly early on uh, that historians call the malcontents. Although I really like in one of their earliest letters, they are referred to by uh, as the Grumbletonians, which I sort of think (laughs) is such a great word. Um, But they start complaining and saying, look, this colony is never going to flourish because... We are our, our labor is too expensive at South Carolina. They used enslaved laborers. The products are much cheaper. No one's going to come here and trade with us because everything is more expensive because we actually have to pay our workers. And so they say it's, it's, it's too expensive. This economically, this is never going to we're never going to prosper. And the trustees are sort of like, yeah, they don't, they don't actually care that much because their idea is not to have people grow rich, right? They don't want it to be like South Carolina, where you already got a a substantial um, class of very wealthy planters owning large plantations. And they don't want that. That's not their idea, right? They're not trying to, their philanthropy, they're, they're, they're not trying to help people grow rich, Uh, So, so then the malcontents change tactics and they actually start writing, it's impossible for white people to labor in this climate, right? And they very, they deliberately draw on this trope of sort of, well, what can white people do in a hot place, and they're you know they're like oh you know we're we're just dropping dead in the fields we can't possibly do this work and you know we we see in south carolina africans doing their work with pleasure they love it right and and we can't possibly do this so they start publishing this material saying this colony is not going to work because we've got we're supposed to be relying on white laborers to do this work and we can't do it because of the climate. And so they're, they're helping to create this public rhetoric about bodies and climate and labor and what white bodies can and can't do. Uh, In the meantime, right, the trustees get some and some other intel, right. and, And other people in private correspondence get this too, that there's actually two, a couple of leaders of the malcontents, their brothers brothers-in-law. And one of them decided he wasn't going to cultivate his land. Instead, he was going to be a physician. And the other one uh, had a brother in St. Kitts, a brother in Bristol. And he'd started selling rum. And so the two of these guys had a, a huge parts of the population of Savannah in debt to them for rum and medicine. Um, but what they want is to become slave merchants. Uh, they've already got the family connections. And so they start using this debt to coerce residents of Savannah into signing petitions saying it's impossible for us to work in this climate. And the trustees still don't buy it, but uh, the this group of malcontents basically decamps to South Carolina. They start, they're, they're perpetuating this rhetoric. They're sort of saying it's impossible and um and the climate the climate, the colony starts to depopulate. People start leaving because they say we can't make money here. And it's flailing and failing and we're we're not making any money, right? So they're they want to make money, the trustees are unimpressed, but after 20 years, you know, in 1751, Parliament takes control of the colony and says, okay, we'll allow. African slaves, you know, and so enslaved people can come from Africa and and be workers in this colony. And then it, it kind of, over the years, grows into another South Carolina. So the what actually happens on the ground, and of course, this is a very condensed way of what of saying what happens on the ground. But what actually happens on the ground is that you've got these two people who are really intent on getting the trustees to allow Black slavery in the colonies so that they can become wealthy. But the public sees this as, oh, they said that white people couldn't work here, and now it it failed. And, And now that there are enslaved Africans allowed, it's growing. And so the story of Georgia becomes, this is an experiment with white laborers that failed and sort of showed everyone that black laborers are necessary in this climate. Um, And so that's one of the places you see this really big difference between what's happening in private and the public narrative.
1: It's an extraordinary story. Also, the way white weakness is in the name of white supremacy. So in in order to say we must have enslaved people, we have to say that we're incapable of this kind of hard work, which is, is fascinating. Um, all of these chapters are really detailed. Uh, it, to have a focus on local beliefs about bodies and health Um, in chapter three, which is called an excellent and healthful situation, colonial patterns of sentiment, you show that white people did not think that black bodies were healthier in these dangerous environmental conditions, as you've been saying all along here, that they actually observed the suffering of black people, and then in chapter four you you talk about the prevailing theories of bodily health and adaption specifically what it means for a body to be seasoned um, can can you very very briefly just take us through a little bit of of what you found with um, the sort of developing white perceptions of health differences
0: so in Western Europe and especially, or, or specifically in this case in Britain, a lot of the thinking about bodily health has to do with place. Uh, and so this is kind of a, a revo- part of a Hippocratic revival, right, an idea of, of Hippocrates' ideas about airs, waters, and places. And, and basically it, it's about paying attention, very close attention to the local Geography, the the microclimate, uh, what are the what is the quality of the air, and that can differ across a space less than a mile, right? What is the how? What's the sunlight like? What is the shade? What are the where, what directions are the breezes coming from? What time of day do they blow? Uh, what's your proximity to standing water? Because then you're going to be in an unhealthy place if you're near standing water. What about running water that can be good for you? Do you get exposure to breezes? And so all of these ideas about very specific local places, uh, are really important to the way that, uh, Britons are thinking about health. And so you can see this in kind of the layout of um, a plantation, right? That somebody will kind of look at this and sort of say, well, where's the healthiest spot? This is where I'm going to build my house. Where is this? Where is this? And uh, that is on a small scale like that. Also, you, you see debates about where and how to lay out cities and towns in these colonies based on what's the healthiest place. Um, But all of this idea about health and where, what kinds of microclimates and conditions are going to make people healthy, there's no difference between, oh, white people are going to be healthy in this type of environment. Black people are going to be healthy in this type of environment. It's across the board this type of environment is healthy for is going to make both black and white people healthy this type of environment is going to make them both unhealthy and so uh, even though you have these these later public arguments and earlier in georgia about well only black people can stand the labor in these places and you know they thrive and they're healthy and this stuff you see these these in 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 um, private sources, you see stuff all the time about, well, yeah, these black people are really sick and they're dying and they're exposed. They're, they're actually more exposed to these unhealthy environments. Right. I mean, everybody thinks a rice plantation is mostly unhealthy because there's all this standing water and they're like, well, look at the high rates of sickness and among enslaved black people because they are forced to do this. And so one of the things that yeah chapter 3 does is really show that there's there's no difference in the conception of health between black and white bodies it's it's all about the place that you are and the exposure you have to environmental conditions um so that's kind of one of the pieces of this right and and the other piece is slightly messier, which is this idea of individual bodies differing, right? So the same places is going to make everybody healthy or unhealthy, but also you can't really tell or predict who's going to get sick and who's going to be healthy because it's all about individual bodies and that there's huge individual bodily difference among everyone, right? And, it, and there's no sense of like, Well, white bodies are like this and black bodies are like that. It's sort of like, well, everyone kind of has their individual bodily constitution, and that's going to determine how healthy they are based on their environment. But the best we can do is make it as healthy as possible for everyone. And then, of course, putting black people in these places and environments that the white people knew to be unhealthy uh, is, you know, one of the other sort of underlying themes of the book about uh environmental racism right and and deliberately putting black bodies into environmentally hazardous spaces
1: right and it's so i mean it, it's so clear in the book that at this point they understand that it's it's the rice field it's the it's the being near the swampy water that's bad so let's put people who we have control over and who we we care more about ourselves. It's, a, it's an argument from self-interest. It's not an argument from difference in biology. And it's, that's, that's the sort of fascinating piece, the way this goes back and forth, and the consistency throughout the book in which the private conversation sticks to these observations, that it is the environment, we all adapt, We don't want to be in dangerous spaces, so let's put people who we have control over, who can't refuse into those spaces. Exactly. Um, You establish all this consistency in private, and then chapter five turns to the public debate over abolishing the transatlantic slave trade, which happens in uh, parliament from 1788 to 1791 uh, you've alluded to this already but how do the public arguments made by the west indian planters differ from what they've been saying in their private letters and the kinds of documents that were closer to the scene
0: yeah so it's it's sort of it's almost startling to read the archival record in this way where you see these uh, planters and absentees and these various people writing about, oh, this, you know, Jamaica is so healthy for white people. More people should move here. It's amazing. Right. And part of this, of course, is boosterism, right. Trying to get more white people to move to these places, but you have all of this writing, um, that, that these places are healthy. And then in and, and the private correspondence where you get people saying that they're healthy or, and, and having these sort of nuanced conceptions of bodies and bodily change, right. And sort of, well, I've, I've tanned and so i my body has changed, but I don't have, you know, other major bodily changes. Um, and then all of a sudden, It's like all of these different, I mean, similar, but but varying ideas about bodies and and uh, and health and ability to labor when the question is put in Parliament about, okay, well, you know, when the committee says, well, can you know, what do you think about abolishing the, the transatlantic slave trade? You know, can we do this? Every single one across the board from every colony absolutely not. It's totally impossible. White people could never work in this climate. It's completely impossible. Um, and, and, you know... To their credit, the committee pushes them on this and sort of says, well, what about white people who are born in these colonies? Didn't they be really well suited to the climate? And they're like, nope, nope, it's impossible. And they say, okay, okay, well, what about free black people? Do they have to be enslaved? Like, it seems like if you're saying it's black bodies, can't we can't do this? Nope, nope, that's impossible too, right? So it's really quite amazing how united All of these different colonial governors and representatives become on this question of labor when the transatlantic slave trade is threatened. And they think, oh my goodness, I might lose some of my own money, right? (laughs) That they just become united on this question. And it's totally impossible. Um, And then again, you see, you see this distinction in public and private. So um, this happens in a, a few different places, but for example, they, they start talking about the plow and they sort of say, well, how, how do you do plowing in, you know, in some of these places in Jamaica, for example. And so you've got this guy and uh, Simon Taylor, and he's writing and he sort of says, okay, this letter is going to parliament. So you say they are wanting to know about how the plow is used, tell them white people don't use it. Maybe they use it for half an hour or so to show enslaved people how it's used, but they couldn't possibly do it any longer, or they would drop dead. And then the same guy writes a letter right after that, that's a private letter saying, you know, to his friend in England, please send out a couple white plowmen, you know, especially those have been used to labor in harsh climates like Scotland, right? Because the idea is that, well, if they're used to laboring in a place like Scotland, then they'll be well-fitted for Jamaica because they're both harsh climates. Um, But, you know, obviously he's not going to bring out some. Scottish people who are going to work for half an hour, right? So you see, but, but the, the rhetoric and the, the, what they're saying in parliament, and then this happens in Congress too, is so, it's so stark that all white people will instantly die if they're being if they're being asked to do this labor and that they, that they never have, right. That they're, they're like, Oh, any ideas that in the early 17th century white people did this labor completely false because it's obviously impossible.
1: And uh, you mentioned Congress, uh, but before we go there, I just want to say it is amazing to have the one letter writer do both, you know, which uh, I, I, that must've been kind of a great moment to, to see that, same person speaking out of the two sides, the public and the private, confirming what it is you're finding at the more collective level. Um, but it's interesting to have one person doing both. Uh, you mentioned Congress, and the last substantive uh, chapter is about, is called The Place of Black Americans, Rhetoric and Race in the 19th Century. And it's focused on how climate rhetoric affects policy in the United States. Um, ha- how were these arguments, just briefly, similar, different from those made in Parliament? Uh, well, they're actually really very similar. I mean, in
0: in the U.S., I think, you know, congressmen and, and, and legislators, especially from the plantation South, from Georgia, from South Carolina they're looking at these debates in parliament and sort of saying they're watching them very closely, right? What is coming out of here? What can we, what's going on here? This is something that they're following pretty closely because they see a similar abolitionist agitation in the U S. And so they're taking these arguments and sort of saying, yeah, it's impossible, right? Uh, It's impossible for white people to labor here. And, in the 1790s, you have, uh, you know, South Carolina congressmen saying, well, look at Georgia. See, it shows us that it's impossible for white people to labor in the South. And we just it it, it can't be
1: done. Um we have a new editorial assistant on new books and political science, Daniela Lavernier, and uh, she's a sophomore here at St. Joseph's. And she wanted to know, you know, how the use of climate rhetoric and biological theories of race um, influence the develop of development of racial connotations and practices outside of the transatlantic slave trade. If you know anything about that, I realize that's not the letters you're looking at. And she also wants to know how it is that you think this history of climate defense of racialized slavery is informing contemporary debates about racism and inequality. Like, is there a legacy of this narrative that's continuing to shape contemporary debates um, and inequality?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So for the first question, I actually think it's really significant, right, to go back to the beginning and kind of how I became interested in this question. And I was reading all this literature that's saying, oh, end of the 18th century, this stuff starts. And I'm like, well, how how does this start? This isn't, where is it coming from? But I actually think the huge publicity around these debates in Congress and in Parliament, the fact that they're happening in the late 1780s and the very early 1790s, seems like not just a coincidence that that's when these sciences begin to really like flourish and really emerge. Um, And so it seems like it's highly likely to me uh, that these debates about bodies and all of this language about these extreme differences between white and black bodies based on the climate and labor, inform these sort of scientific endeavors to prove biological race, right? And that it's sort of showing that there's these fundamental bodily differences because if bodies are going to be so different in their ability to labor, then there must be something really different about them. And so I absolutely think that these debates inform sort of the development of race science, Um the legacy is actually huge right and so i think it's actually very relevant to today um so this once this rhetoric gets really established which i would say isn't really until after these debates in congress and parliament you know georgia's this little blip where it kind of it happens but then there's no threats to the slave trade or to slavery after that for a while. So nobody sort of talks about it. Um, and so when, when it really gets established at the end of the 18th century, it then comes up again and again in so many contexts. Um, and I see this happening a lot in the U S right. So it happens in debates about colonization and emigration. Well, you know, with this question of sort of, well, if you have, black people who are no longer enslaved or free black people where should they live um you know should should they be sent away to 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 a colony in africa should they be like where where should they go and then black people themselves who are like well should we emigrate out of this really racist place uh, where should we go you know is canada a viable option for us or not um, and then you also see it coming up in debates about the expansion of slavery as the U S expands. Right. I mean, as they're sort of taking more and more territory and turning those territories into States, it's like, well, which is going to be slave States and which will be free States. And so you have the development of this concept that actually climate is going to determine where there's slavery and this uh, this, there's a somehow a, an, Great climatic law, right, that exists that's sort of outside of legislators' hands, and they can't possibly decide where there's going to be slavery because it's all up to the climate, and it's kind of coming from this almost divine authority that's determined this. And, uh, but of course, black activists are like, that's ridiculous, right? There's so many ways in which that's absurd because things like Cotton are grown in places without slavery. Places that once had slavery no longer have slavery. Like, the climate does not determine slavery. People do. Um, And so Black activists are trying to call out legislators on this, but legislators who are sort of like the white legislators who are kind of like, I I don't want to get involved. I'll just leave it up to the climate. Um, Just have this cop out of saying, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get involved in that. Um, but the legacy really does persist. So even, uh, you know, even up to, and I think, you know, this is in the book too, but, but Mississippi's statement of secession, right? they sort of say, we, we can't stay in the union because if you're going to think about abolishing slavery, only black people can work in our climate. And so it's not possible. Uh, and then, um, and maybe I'm going on a little bit here, but but one of my favorite parts of all of this, right, is that right after the Civil War, and if I'm getting ahead of myself, we can jump back, but um, these st- uh, Southern former slaveholders who are looking for labor, you know, they sort of no, no longer have enslaved laborers, and they're trying to attract white laborers, and they're like, I don't know who came up with this idea that white people can't work in the South. This is crazy. This must be these malicious Northerners who have come up with this idea just to spite us, because that makes no sense to me whatsoever. And then they point to Georgia and they're like, there was, and I didn't go into this in the Georgia when I was talking about Georgia, but there's this group of um, people called the Salzburgers who come over and they are able to work and they're from Germany and they're like against enslaved people. uh, And for the same reason the trustees are, they say, we don't want any enslaved laborers here. And, um, and, and, the Salzburgers get ignored in all of the later justifications for racial slavery. But now suddenly these former slaveholders are like, Oh, it's tough. See Georgia actually proved that if people worked hard, they could white people could labor in this climate. Um, But they, they essentially, they fail to attract white laborers. Right. And in large part, this is, because this rhetoric has become so entrenched and promoted that only black people can labor in these hot places and white people will get sick and die and so this idea has become so promulgated so entrenched that people just sort of believe it and so the and and it has a long legacy right it ha- it it goes into other projects it goes into discussion of Who's going to build the Panama Canal? It goes into all kinds of of, um, of discussions about which bodies are fit for what what things. I mean, you even see it. Well, I'll talk about that in a minute, but uh, well, uh,
1: but yeah, it has a
0: really long legacy.
1: Well, we're getting we're, to the end, and. We tried to get a lot into um, a short podcast. It's an incredibly rich and detailed book. But is there something that I didn't ask you about that you you really think you want people to understand about this book and what you were trying to achieve writing it?
0: Um, no, I think you, I mean you asked great questions. I I guess the only other thing I was about to say, which isn't isn't something that you haven't asked me, it's just something I want to kind of reiterate, is that. In later explanations, right, historical accounts in the 20th century, even into the 21st, you see this idea, oh, planters in these hot places turned to enslaved African laborers because white people were incapable of doing this work. And so you have that given even now as an explanation for racial slavery and what I really want this book to do more than anything else is to show that that, that giving that as an explanation, right, is just sort of taking these planters at their word. And it's, it's not, it's not true. It's not what happened, right? They didn't turn to enslaved African laborers because of their ability to work in the climate and because of white people's inability to work in the climate. Um, They did it for, for economic reasons, right, for, for personal economic reasons and that Uh, that this rhetoric that developed had huge lasting implications for the way that we even think about the history of plantation labor, and that that has no grounding
1: in actual reality. It's an amazing book. It's an amazing book about the power of ideology, but also how ideology is produced, because you're able to show this sort of back conversation that's happening in the private letters and in the, the the day-to-day work that people do in government and in running a business, and then what it is that they get up and say in public when it is that they want a policy to be a particular way. It's just stunning. And you should sort of be bathing in the excitement of having written such a remarkable book. But I have to ask you because that's what we do at the end of this podcast is what are you working on now? What can we look forward to?
0: Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a very good question.
1: Um, so I actually
0: am, um, I have a few different ideas, but I'm, um, I'm mostly right now focused on um, sort of ideas about wet nursing uh, and how kind of uh, sort of white planter families using enslaved black wet nurses um, and how this kind of complicates ideas about race and racial difference um, and about imagery of women's bodies in these colonial spaces. Uh, so turning, you know, a little bit more toward gender in different ways, um, but, but uh, still keeping this focus on on sort of how people are really thinking about racialized bodies,
1: uh, just in, in kind of different, slightly different ways. Well, when you are done with that one, you'll have to come back to talk to us. Um, <laughs> tell me your favorite uh, brick-and-mortar bookstore for people to come buy your book in uh, Bozeman or Beloit or both. And uh, we'll also have a link in the show notes as to where people can get it online.
0: Uh, sure. Well, here in Bozeman, um, we have the Country Bookshelf, uh, which is a great local bookstore. And um, the book is there. <laughs>
1: Fantastic. Um, I've been talking to Katherine Johnston, who wrote The Nature of Slavery, Environment and Plantation Labor in the Anglo-Atlantic World, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. And it's just been a delight to read the book and have the conversation. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you so much. It was so fun. <laughs>